0: Let's turn and read in our Bible, in the book of Ruth again, and uh, the first chapter, page 267 in the church Bibles, and uh, what we'll do is we'll read the whole of the uh, the first 18 verses, not quite the first chapter, but the first 18 verses to get the big picture of uh, the early narrative of Ruth so that we can all see exactly uh, where this story, this history is going. The book of Ruth and the first chapter. And we hear the word of God, not the word of man. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, "'Died, and she was left with her two sons. "'These took Moabite wives. "'The name of the one was Orpah, "'and the name of the other Ruth. "'They lived there about ten years, "'and both Marlon and Chilion died, "'so that the woman was left "'without her two sons and her husband. "'Then she arose with her daughters-in-law,' as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? After your sister-in-law. But Ruth said. Do not urge me. To leave you. Or to return from following you. For where you go. I will go. And where you lodge. I will lodge. Your people. Shall be. My people. And your God. My God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. Well, last week, we came to the great, dramatic moment of decision. One of the great, decisive flashpoints in the whole story of the Bible, where we saw two daughters-in-law faced with an agonizing dilemma. They're both widowed. They're both childless. They're both living at a time when to be a woman alone without a male relative was to be in extreme danger and likelihood of poverty. What do they do? Do they return home to safety, to Moab, to their own family, to their own people? Or do they go on with this woman, Naomi, this Israelite woman, this mother-in-law, that they have come to know and to love. And we saw last week how Orpah, one of the sisters-in-law, decided that there was nothing to be gained. Having been persuaded by Naomi, she returned and went back to Moab. And that's the end of Orpah's story. She's not mentioned anymore in the whole Bible. Orpah is over. Her story is finished. But Ruth's story is only just beginning. And here we left her, and here she still is this week, as it were, as we come back to this scene. And she's clinging to her mother-in-law. And even while she's clinging, Naomi has not quite given up trying to persuade her. You can see in verse 15 that she is giving she's giving it one last attempt. You can imagine her pointing and saying, Look. There's Orpah, she's off in the distance, she's going away. This is your chance, go with her. She's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Go while you can, you're safer with her than going alone. Keep her company, why won't you go with her? But Ruth will not let go of Naomi. And as we said last week, here in verse 14, the verb clung. The verb to cling is the same word as is used in Genesis 2 and verse 24 for Adam clinging to his wife Eve. And I want at the beginning of this sermon to really emphasize that point. This clinging of Ruth to Naomi is the clinging of marriage in the sense that It is the clinging of deep and total commitment to Naomi. She will not let her go. And then we see in verses 16 and 17, this clinging, finding powerful expression in Ruth's words. The very first words that we have from her in this book, which I will read again. Verse 16 and 17, look with me. But Ruth said... Do not urge me to leave you, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, with the children a little while ago, we thought about the great change. Exemplified or illustrated in various animals, metamorphosizing, if that's the correct verb to use. And this morning I want to think about the great change. That takes place when someone comes to follow the Lord God. When someone, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, comes to know and trust the true and living God. I want us to see what is going on here. And I would suggest to you that what we see in Ruth's example is a template, a blueprint, a model. A prototype, use whatever word you wish. It is the pattern of genuine Christian transformation, decision, conversion. In fact I want to see three things in Ruth's actions that are profoundly important for us all this morning in what it means to come to know and to follow the true and living God. We see commitment And we see conversion. And we see covenant. And we see these three things together. And we see them in Ruth. And let's begin with the first of these, which is commitment. And just look at the pattern of Ruth's words, the pattern of her speech. In verse 16 and verse 17. Do you see how the you and the I, the you and the I, the your and the my, the your and the my, the you and the me, the you and the I, they are paired together, aren't they? So often, what you do, I will do. Where you go, I will go. If this happens to you, it'll happen to me. You, me, you, me, you, I, all the way down. What does that remind you of? From words we may occasionally hear in a building like this. Well, I thought straight away, maybe you do too, of certain words that are spoken in the traditional marriage vows, where the bride and the groom will both say these words. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And that's what's happening here. What is Ruth doing? As in a marriage... She is wholly and unreservedly joining herself to Naomi and Naomi's people. She is demonstrating absolute, lifelong, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death thus do part, loyalty to Naomi and Naomi's people. Notice that. See the language of intention. See the language of absolute, resolute purpose. Naomi, mother-in-law dear, stop talking about returning. How often we see in the early verses of Ruth, chapter 1, the words return, return, go back, turn back, return. No, says Ruth the time for the language of returning is over. I'm going with you. I'm going forward. I commit myself to you. I pledge myself to you. I bind, I cling myself to you and to your people. Notice in particular in this section on commitment, the words of Naomi in verse 16 where where she says your people shall be my people Naomi your people shall from now on be my people but Ruth you're from Moab but Ruth you're not of Naomi's people Naomi says Ruth your people shall be my people from now on, and let me immediately apply this to today's Christian life and culture, I strongly suggest this morning that we need this emphasis in church life, in the Christian life, more than ever before. When we follow the Lord, when we follow our God, we follow him Together with his people, so that his people are our people. The Lord God knows no other way. The Bible gives us no other way. God does not summon individuals in little isolated rooms and villages around the world, individually, separately to himself, He calls a gathered people. And when he calls you to himself, he calls you to be a part of that people. To throw in your lot with them. To become part of that community of faith. That household. That family. That body. That building of living stones and all the wonderful pictures the Bible gives of a joining together, of a togetherness, of a gathering, of a oneness. Yes, we become part of the worldwide fellowship of Christians. Praise God for that. Praise God for our sisters from El Salvador and from family in the church who have come from all over the world. We are a worldwide body of believers, but let me particularly add this, in this particular local church, Grove Chapel, and in every local church, we are one family and gathering of people together. And in our own Western culture, there have been for some time all sorts of uh, causes that have accelerated the, the trend towards a, uh, an individualism, a breaking up of this unity, a scattering, a fragmentation. Families breaking up. More and more people living alone. Local communities becoming so alienated, mutually fragmenting all the time. And then there are other causes, aren't there, that contribute, it seems, in the 21st century, in this, these years, to, to the breaking up of this sense of being are people together. What do I mean? I mean, for example, the consumer culture. People will talk about churches as if they're supermarkets. I shop at Tesco, you shop at Sainsbury's, I go to this church, you go to that church. It, it suits my taste. I happen to like the style there. I like the building, I like the music, I, I like the ambiance, I, I just like it suits me it's my taste that's one cause and then there's added to that the effects of the internet and particular social media i'm going to listen to this preacher today on this verse on this theme because uh, i like i want to hear about this subject and he's my favorite preacher and i don't need to get up and get out of bed and go to a church building somewhere. No, I can stay with the duvet rolled over my head and snuggled up there and just reach for my iPhone and I can play my favorite preacher. And that's all I need. I'll get ministry that way. I don't need to go and sit with a load of people I don't really know very well, do I? There are those tendencies, aren't there? And there are others as well, which we could mention. But Ruth's words here are revolutionary. They're breathtaking. They're transforming. They're powerful to us. They challenge you and me. She's saying to Naomi, all that I am, all I will be, all I will do for the rest of my life is bound up with you and your people. This is my first greatest, all-defining commitment. Your people are my people. And this needs to challenge you and me profoundly and radically this morning. Who are we here today? Do you and I look around this room and say of one another who are here, these are my people. We belong to each other. More than we belong to our ethnic groups, social groups, community sectors, professional groups, interests, all the rest of it, male, female, all of these things, above that, greater than that, we say as the people of God, these people, we are, we belong to one another. These people are my people. This people is our people. Ruth is still a woman. That's not going to change. Her name is still Ruth. That's not going to change. She'll always have Moabite ancestry. That's not going to change. She's still called Ruth the Moabites. Later on in the book, that doesn't change. And here we are in this room and we come from different backgrounds and they are still true of us they're not they're not erased they're not wiped out if you were once from Jamaica you'll always be a Jamaican if you came from Italy you'll always be Italian and so on but a higher call a higher deeper identity now defines who we are if we are the lords we say we are one another's people this is my people this is your people. We are one people. We are committed and bound as one people. It matters. It's so It's so deeply embedded in the word of God. Commitment. It's not a strong enough word, actually, is it, really? But let's get a bit deeper, shall we? What is it that's causing Ruth to do this, I wonder? Second theme conversion because go a little further beyond the words your people will be my people and then we hear ruth saying and your god my god and your god my god and we said last week that as ruth is clinging to naomi She's not simply clinging to Naomi as a human being. Her devotion to Naomi is not merely personal, relational in that sense. She's not saying, Well, I, I just happen to get get on with Naomi. I like her personality, she's my type. We banter together. We like to have a bit of a laugh together, we, we have the same interests and we get on well, you know. Is that all it is? It's not that. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Ruth is clinging through Naomi to the God of Naomi. To the God whose being, whose character, whose actions define everything about Naomi and Naomi's people. Now, I don't know about you, when you look at verse 15 and you look at Naomi's words to Ruth before Ruth speaks, maybe like me you think um, there are things Naomi says there that we might struggle with. What does Naomi say? Uh, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, Naomi is a slightly puzzling character in one or two places in this book. I mean, if Naomi believes in the Lord, the one true God, does Naomi believe in these Moabite gods, we might wonder? If Naomi believes that only the Lord can save, why would she encourage Ruth to put herself outside of God's salvation? And if Naomi knows anything at all about these Moabite gods that we read about in the Old Testament, like Chemosh, and their abominable practices, why would she ever dream of suggesting that Ruth might go back and worship these Moabite gods? Now, these are not easy questions for us to answer today. and in, in some ways, they're quite modern questions coming from our own particular vantage point. But I don't want to think about Naomi's perspective. I want us this morning to really zoom in on Ruth herself and Ruth's response. And we might say to Ruth, Ruth, why are you leaving the gods of Moab? And why are you clinging to the Lord God, the God of Israel? And what can we learn from today's passage about the difference between Moabite gods And the Lord God of Israel. Well there is a very clear difference indeed isn't there? Right on the surface. The gods of Moab. The God of Israel. The plural gods of Moab are many. The Lord God of Israel is one. And in this chapter alone, we can learn so much theology. We can see so much doctrine. We can find out so much about what this one God is like. Look back at verse 6. And Ruth has been going through all of this throughout these recent days. Verse 6 tells us, at the end of verse 6, it is the Lord who has visited his people and given them food. Now, why am I saying this? Because it's not various gods. It's not one God for the sun, and one God for the rain, and one God for fertility, and one God for growth, and one God for plants, and one God for all the rest of it. No, it is the one Lord over creation, and providence, and heaven, and earth, and sun, and rain, and soil, who is doing all of this. How different to the gods of Moab. One God. And then notice in verse 8 and 9 that the words of Naomi when she is suggesting, indeed imploring that her daughters should go back to Moab, daughters in law go back to Moab. She mentions the Lord in verse 8 and in verse 9, and the point there is this that uh, the Lord God is not a little local God a minor tribal deity who only exercises power in a fairly small area around Bethlehem among a single nationality who call out to him. No, Naomi is saying, may the Lord, may the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord grant that you find rest back in Moab. What's the point? He's the God of the whole earth. These are not the gods of Moab. This is not only the God of Israel. He's the God of the whole earth with almighty power over the lives of people everywhere, wherever they go. That's our God. It's true today. You might want to go on holiday to the Far East and you might visit Hindu or or Buddhist temples and you might learn about all sorts of Deities who are meant to dwell in these regions, shamanism, animism, and all these things, but the Bible declares that there is one God and only one God over the whole earth. And then notice this why is this God so great? He is also the God who brings hardship and calamity as well as blessing. Look at verse 13, the end of verse 13, where Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What's going on here? He is the God who rains down blessing and gives bread. He is the God who also brings calamity and distress when he chooses to. That's how big this God is. That's how all-encompassing his work is. That's how mighty he is. That's how all-embracing he is. That's how comprehensive he is. And again, you can look at the various pagan gods of myths, whether you're talking about classical Greek and Roman gods or the, the Norse gods, the gods of thunder and the gods of the sun and the gods of the sea And you find that these gods are sometimes good and they bring good things and then there are other gods who are bad and they bring hard things and these gods are even fighting against each other, aren't they, for supremacy. And these gods are just like people warring against each other. And Ruth is learning this. There is one God who brings everything, who does everything. He is one God over all. It reminds us of Deuteronomy 32 (coughs) Verse 29, let me read those words, where God says to his people, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. That is our God. (coughs) And we must understand that Ruth has seen all of this. And that is why she clings on to Naomi. And clings on to Naomi's God. But I want to explore this a little bit further. I want to really get at the heart of what Ruth is saying. This isn't my final point quite yet. I want to stay with conversion a bit longer. What does it mean to be converted to becoming a follower of the true and living God? What does it mean for Ruth to say, your God will be my God? What does it mean if you were to say today, This God is my God. I don't think there's any single more important question than that in the whole of life. It's the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to say, God is my God. God is my God. When we say that, what do we mean? We're saying far more than simply saying, I believe that there's a God. People can believe there is a God, but that God is not their God. When we say God is my God, we are saying something of, of personal relationship and choice and orientation and devotion about who this God is to us. Let me give examples of this. We're saying, for example, as David does in Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. What does he mean by saying you are my God? What well, he's saying this. God, I have need of you. God, I am very small and needy and poor and weak, and you are very great. Or to use another of David's psalms, even more eloquent in some ways, Psalm 16, verse 1 David says, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Everything I receive, everything I have, everything I am, the breath in my lungs, the blood in my veins, the air in the atmosphere, the health in my body, the speech in my voice, and all that I have and all that I've been given is from you. You are my God, I have no good apart from you, no good anywhere apart from you. That is what it means to acknowledge that he is our God who gives and blesses us with everything. And then you see a second point. When we say God is my God, when we see that we have no good apart from this one God, we devote our lives to God. We give ourselves to him. We cling to him with the whole of our being. The great uh, pictorial emblem that John Calvin, the reformer, would use as a sort of insignia of his own life and attitude and the whole purpose of his being was, was that of a, a flaming heart in a pair of hands. And this heart being offered up to God and the words, my heart, O Lord, I offer to you promptly and sincerely. That is the very heart of what it means to say, Oh God, you are my God. All I am is yours. All I have is you. As Peter says to our Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. To whom else shall I go? I follow you, Jesus. I follow you, Lord. I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength in the totality of life with the totality of my being, as far as I can, and I know how far short I fall, but God has called me to devote myself to him and say, God, you are my God, you have an absolute claim over the whole of my life. That is genuine conversion. That is what it means to follow God and call him my God. The language of marriage again. All that is yours is mine. All that I have is yours. I bind myself to you. I cling myself to you today. That's Christian conversion. Your God will be my God. He is my God. I have a final point to make. Covenant. Let me explain covenant. Verse 17, Ruth hasn't finished. Having said, your God will be my God. She continues, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Just supposing that Ruth's words had come to an end at the end of verse 16. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God, and that's it. Well, perhaps Ruth, if that were true, would have a get out clause, wouldn't she? Naomi, for as long as I'm with you, I'll stay with you. For as long as I'm with you, Naomi. I'll worship your God, I'll go along and join with all your worship practices in the land of Israel. But once Naomi's, once she's gone, which may not be many years from now, she's an older woman, I, Ruth, can always just knit back to Moab, can't I? And take up again with somebody else and see how Orpah's getting, Orpah's getting on, all the rest of it. It's just for a while. It's just for a few more years and then I can head back and uh, resume my old life back in the land of Moab. The words of Ruth in verse 17 utterly contradict and refute any such suggestion. I will die where you die. I will be buried where in the plot of land where you're buried, with all that that means in the Old Testament, with an understanding that there was that when the believer in the Lord dies, they are gathered with the departed souls and are with the Lord. In the grave, says Ruth, I will still be clinging to the dust of Naomi and her people in the adjacent graves my commitment and conversion is lifelong and beyond it goes beyond the grave and notice the strength of her language aren't her final words in verse 17 striking may the Lord do so to me And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What is Ruth doing? She is invoking a terrible curse on herself. She is saying, may the Lord's most strident, powerful judgment be carried out on me should I break the terms of the promise that I've made to Naomi and her people. And what is this? This is the biblical language of covenant. This is the biblical language of covenant. Now, what do I mean by that? As we go through the book of Genesis and go on through the Old Testament, we see the covenant-making God. And we see particularly with Abraham that when God comes to Abraham, he comes and he says to him, I am the Lord your God. This is who I am. This is who I reveal myself to be to you. He then goes on to say, and Abraham, I make certain promises to you. I pledge myself to you. I will give you land. I will give you children. I will give you my blessing and my protection. But also... When God makes a covenant with Abraham and with others, he attaches to the end of that covenant promise a penalty. A penalty. What do I mean? Well, should the terms of the covenant and the promise be broken, there will be consequences which involve the shedding of blood and the taking of life. That's how earnestly I pledge myself to you. Now, let me bring it into something more familiar to us, perhaps. Sometimes you may have heard people in the past saying things like this, maybe younger people not always thinking what they're saying. I I promise I'll do this to you. I promise I'll do this for you. Cross my heart and hope to die. You've seen people do that kind of thing? I don't know if they always know what they're saying. Cross my heart and hope to die. They put their finger across their neck or something like that. And they mean, well, I I really will do it. Do they actually mean, well, if I don't do it, you can slit my throat? I don't know if they quite mean that. But that's the kind of thing that God does with Abraham. You remember that ceremony of the covenant where the animals are cut in half and the Lord passes between those Cut pieces of animal, saying, if I break this covenant, I will be as these dead animals are. And this is what Ruth is doing. She's saying, and maybe she's still holding on to Naomi and clinging on with both arms as she says it. She's saying, I cling forever to you and to your people. I cling Forever to your God who is now my God. And if I break off from my clinging. May my life. Even my blood. Be forfeit. Should I break that solemn bond. What is a covenant in the Bible. I used to always show a covenant. With uh, a little imagery of, of key rings. And if I've got key rings in my pocket, I'll, I'll show you what I mean. There's only one ring on these key rings. Imagine if there were two. Well, there's a, there's a key and there's a ring, okay? Now, you know, these, this key and this ring are bound together, okay? They, they can't be pulled apart, although they can if this starts to loosen a little bit. Alright? And that's a reasonable picture of a covenant. It's a joining together, it's a, it's a bonding, it's, a, it's a holding together of two things, okay? But there's a better picture of a covenant. That's too impersonal. Keys don't have souls. Keys can't make promises, can they? But people can. What is a covenant? It's a clinging. It's a clinging of two beings, two people, or God and somebody, with their arms wrapped around each other, and they're clinging on to each other. That's what a covenant is. It's a clinging. What is Ruth doing in clinging on to Naomi? I mean, is is Ruth coming from a position of strength? Is she saying, I'm strong and I'm going to cling on to you and I'm going to save you, Naomi? No, she's not. Her words, her clinging, is a response to how great and how strong and how merciful the Lord is. Her clinging to the Lord Resolute as it is, is only Ruth's response and reflex to the covenant clinging of the Lord himself to his own people. Who is the great covenant maker? Who is the great clinger? Not Ruth, not you, not me, not anyone but the Lord himself. And for us today, who is the great covenant clinger? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, who clings to his own people in an eternal covenant of salvation and fellowship. And here's the question. What if his people sin? What if his people, what if we break that covenant? What if we do not do what we are required to do by the God of the covenant? What's the cost? What's the penalty? Where's the fulfillment of Ruth's words? May the Lord do so to me and more also. Where do we see that? Where do we see the terrible great sentence of covenant breaking being enacted? Do we see it on ourselves? Do we see it on Ruth? Do we have to bear terrible consequences if we break the covenant? No. The crucified and bleeding body of the Lord Jesus himself becomes the curse, the physical embodiment of Ruth's words. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you as I draw to a close what must we do yes we say to God you are my God my heart I offer to you promptly and sincerely and yes we say to one another fellow believers you are my people you are my people we are one people we belong together but what's the great reason and motivation that compels us to do these things? Jesus Christ himself has clung himself to us eternally. The eternal Son of God clings his divine nature to our human nature. Unbreakably so. The Son of God who is now in glory is a human Son of God, a human Saviour. And there's more than that. He clings himself even to our sin. Can you imagine that? The pure, spotless, sinless Son of God clings himself to your and my moral degradation and filth. And is made sin for us. Is seen on that cross as a bloody sin offering. Because he's clung himself so completely to our natures and even to our sin. That he dies to take that sin and guilt away from us. That's how tightly Jesus clings to us. The cross is his clinging. If Ruth clung to Naomi, how much more should we cling to Jesus, seeing how much he has clung to us? George gave this illustration last Sunday. It's a powerful one. We were chatting about it. Here's a mother. Here's a little child. Walking across the road. And the mother says to the child, we're crossing a dangerous, busy road hold my hand tight and you'll get across okay and the child holds the mother's hand as tightly as he can his little hand but whose grip is stronger who's holding more tightly who's making absolutely sure that that little child gets across the road safely the mother that's right that's right We might paraphrase the New Testament. We cling to God because he first clung to us. Ruth isn't saved by her clinging, not by her clinging. She clings because she has tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious and loving and powerful and saving. And that's the gospel message for us all, the gospel in the book of Ruth this God who comes, joins himself to us and clings himself to us so that we might be everlastingly saved. What will you do today except bow your knees and your hearts and follow him with one another and say as Ruth said, these people are my people and this God is is my God. He clung to me. Long before I clung to him. He loved me. And he gave himself. For me. Let's pray together. We praise. Worship. Thank and adore you. O oh Lord God, for this amazing love, this wonderful saving love that you have shown us through your Son, who could not have given more, who could not have been a greater gift, who could not have clung himself more closely to all that we are, even our sin and our shame and our guilt, than he did as Christ crucified. This covenant clinging bond that keeps us and saves us, now, and forever. We entrust our souls into your hands. We pray you would be with us for the rest of this day. In Jesus' name. Amen.